Well, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be in verse 9 today. We're continuing our study of this book, 1 Thessalonians. So I'll read beginning in verse 9. Now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So we'll be focusing on this passage and seeing what instructions God has for us here. So as you remember from last week, we've reached a turning point in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're rounding the corner in this letter that is found in so many of Paul's writings. But 1 Thessalonians is a little different. The first three chapters, it's not devoted to deep doctrine, like maybe Ephesians or other books, other letters. Rather, the first three chapters were devoted to him retelling his relationship with a new church in Thessalonica and trying to strengthen his relationship with this church and commending them for all sorts of virtues that they exhibited. And we looked at that, both his example and this church's example, and we're drawing implications for our lives as a new church, how we can structure our church and treat one another in a way that imitates and mimics Paul's relationship with this church. But now Paul turns his attention to specific instructions to the church. If you look at chapter 3, verse 10, at the very end of that verse, 3.10, He says he wanted to visit them again to complete what is lacking in their faith. And so this church is good. It's growing. It's a group of real believers that are loving one another. And yet Paul is still conscious of some deficiencies. Some deficiencies. And there's deficiencies in every church. I mean, if we're still here, we have deficiencies personally and corporately. It's often said, if you find a good church, you shouldn't join it because you'll be, you'll be the problem. You'll be the reason that it ceases to be a perfect church or a good church. Um, and so we, we want to be humble and we want to come to God's word always ready to change, always ready to hear something, some instruction, sometimes even a rebuke on how we live. And as you remember last week, we focused on that first major issue of sexual immorality and sexual purity and being people that are characterized by, by purity in that area. And that's a basic of the Christian life. If you ask the question, what, if I'm a brand new Christian, what are the basics? My life is in total disarray and disorder. Give me just a couple practical areas to reform, to focus on. Well, Paul would say, okay, lesson one in just practical Christian living. If the, if the issue of sexual purity is not in order, That's where you focus. Focus there. 
I mean, don't focus on learning how to preach. Uh, don't focus on traveling to India, right, or solving world hunger. I mean, get that under control. And we even went over some strong warnings from that passage and other places in Scripture related to that. And so we need to keep working on that. But there's a second area here that it's almost like lesson number two, basic training, basic lesson two for Christian living. And that's this idea of work. But notice Paul doesn't just say, now concerning your job, right? He doesn't say that. He kind of leads into that issue. And how does he do that? He introduces it with the idea of brotherly love. Most of our translations have at the beginning of verse 9, now concerning the love of the brothers or concerning brotherly love. So that's the topic today, brotherly love. It's Work is, is related to that, as I tried to imply in my sermon title, Love and Work. But we're really beginning with considering this subject of brotherly love. Okay, so sexual purity, maybe I... I'm working on that or I have, I'm beginning to get that under control. Where do I start next? Well, okay, now it's time to ask the question, what does true, vibrant, brotherly love look like in the church? And love is so often repeated in our culture um, that it can be hard to pin down sometimes. It can be such a general, broad, vague term. And the love of a Christian church among believers I mean, that love ought to be a little different than the world's just vague, feelings-oriented, feeling-centered idea of love. And so God is going to help us with that today, being a little more practical and specific about how we can grow in brotherly love. And he does that in two ways. Before we get to the exhortation and the instruction, we're given a commendation. So notice there in verse 9, Paul says, Now concerning love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. In other words, you're already doing great here. You're already doing great. Here's Paul the pastor uh, instructing someone, knowing that they they need to grow, they do need to change, but how does he begin? By instructing them. Right, he begins by commending them, by recognizing their, their virtues, by recognizing the things they are doing well. Right? It's so easy to discourage people when you just, all you do is notice faults. And if there's no fault, it's like you don't say anything to them. It's only when there's a fault that you, you, know, you, you, you um, issue a rebuke to them. But that can be very discouraging to be treated like that, especially by a pastor. And so Paul a very tactful pastor here, he commends them that they're already excelling in brotherly love. And so what is the love of the brothers or brotherly love? Uh, this, th- there's this idea in the world that there's a brotherhood of humanity, that we're all bound together by one cord of humanity, and we, there ought to be a common love among all people. Well, it's true that God originally designed life and civilization to be held together with love, mutual love among people. But when the, when the Bible refers to brotherly love, it's not referring to that. It's referring to actually the love that's in a family, that ought to exist in a family the way God created the family to function. He created the family really to have close friendships among the members of the household. 
right? This, this word, just in the common, common literature back in the day, referred to the love between a brother and a sister. And I know many of us have had really difficult upbringings and family history, but you can know God originally designed the family to be a sweet place to grow up in. I mean, brothers and sisters, they eat together. They go to the same schools. They have the same mother and father. Uh, they are bored together. They have to find things to do that are productive, hopefully, together. And they grow in their friendships just because they spend so much time, so much time together. There's so much shared experiences between them that really brothers and sisters ought to be the closest friends. They ought to be, they ought to be the closest friends. I mean, if we're called to love the people nearest to us, I mean, who's closer than that? Your brother or your sister? And so that's the kind of love Paul is talking about here, this kind of love that exists in the family. But if we think a little deeper about this, you know, this is really impossible to have with an unbeliever, between a believer and a Christian. Because friendship, it's really built upon a shared life, isn't it? A shared life. It's, it's hard to be friends with someone that you're so distant from, you never see. Many of us had friends in our childhood. We were so close to them, and then we moved. I mean, you may still speak to them occasionally, but, you know, they're in Mississippi somewhere. They're in Massachusetts somewhere. They're in some other country. And so we just naturally drift. We naturally drift apart. But an unbeliever also, aside from maybe distance that might exist between us and our, the friends of our childhood, they really have different priorities, a different worldview, all the things that really move our hearts and occupy our minds doesn't make a lot of sense to them. It doesn't make a lot of sense to them. I mean, I was just had lunch a few um, a few months ago with my best friend from high school, and man, we are just at the opposite ends of the world. <laughs> I mean, we used to laugh together, spend days and weeks together talk about all sorts of things and all of a sudden here we are having lunch oh it'd be fun to have lunch again and it's just kind of awkward oh what are you doing well I'm a pastor oh okay or or what are you thinking about oh well you know I'm seeing this girl tomorrow and all that and start saying oh kind of challenging him a little bit on his relationships with women uh being offended by that so that was sad it's really hard the point being it's really hard to be have this kind of brotherly love with those that are outside of God's family. I mean, an unbeliever, they, wh- when you start talking about sin, how do they respond? If you start saying, well, the Lord has really been convicting me on such and such an issue or a sin, it's beginning to grieve me, and they, they just kind of look at you like with an eyebrow raised, huh? Oh, well, that's, I mean, don't be so hard on yourself about that. Or attitude toward the future. I mean, our unbelieving friends, they're, they're trying to store up treasure on earth. Right? They're trying to lay up treasure here. They're, everything they're working toward and building, it's for the here and now, whereas us, it's the opposite. And so a lot of the things we do don't make a lot of sense. I mean, we, we give to people in need. We, we spend our life humbly serving other people with probably no chance of ever being recognized in history books, in, in the community, by anyone of significance. We spend our life in relative obscurity. Such things unbelievers can't really relate to. And so 
This kind of love, it's only possible among Christians. And when the scripture uses brotherly love, it's this special love that exists here, first and foremost, in the local church. And Paul's talking to a church, as you see here. Obviously, he's writing to the church of Thessalonica. It's not just to the scattered Christians throughout the whole known world, you know, way out there by yourself. It's the Christians in the local church. And this is only possible among Christians, this kind of brotherly love. And that's because, first and foremost, that we love Christ, that we recognize what Christ has done for us. We've, we've seen, at least by faith, reading the scripture, what Christ did at the cross, how he laid down his life for us. But Christ isn't here. He's, I mean, he's not here. We can't serve him personally in a way that his disciples could. And so what Christ commands us to do now is, okay, you love me. If you love me, love my people. That's how you love me. That's how you love me from now on, is by loving my people. And so they are now our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. He said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so that's his major commandment for us as a church. So aside from worshiping God, loving God, serving God, I mean, in the second place is other believers, how you treat other believers. And Paul says, again, he commends the church. He's not teaching them. By the way, now that you're a Christian, you have to learn this, the secret of brotherly love. There's this thing you need to start doing. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, you already are doing this, right? They already are loving one another. Why? Well, he gives two reasons. The first reason is that they are taught by God directly to love one another. Do you notice that? It's actually one word in the original language, taught by God. It's a rare word, and it means what it says. It means a man didn't have to come to Thessalonica and teach them about love. He didn't have to come to these people that were selfish and proud and say, okay, you're selfish and proud, and that's good you believed in Jesus, but now let me teach you how to love someone. That just, that came with the package. So at their conversion, in that moment, God had taught them to love. And so this is a really compressed statement here. And so when we, if we want to learn exactly what this means, we have to let Scripture clarify itself. And I think it is worth turning to one passage in a, excuse me, 1 John 4, 7. I think it's a great passage that explains what Paul's referring to here. So in 1 John 4, 7, Uh, we're told how God teaches us, every Christian, to love. So how does God do that to us? John writes there in 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So this explains it a bit more, that love is not just an automatic thing that appears, but it's actually a result of what in this verse? 
The, the word born is mentioned. So th- this is the doctrine of the new birth. Have you heard of that doctrine before? Uh, someone saying, I'm born again, or you're a born again Christian, as opposed to some other kind of Christian, presumably. Well, this is the doctrine of the new birth. And here John is connecting the new birth with love that exists in every Christian. And notice his reasoning here. He says, let's love one another. So the same thing. Let's excel in that love. Let's keep loving one another and grow in that love. And you're able to do that. Why? Well, everyone who loves has been born of God. So you already have the resources to love. I mean, I can't, I can't teach you to love. I mean, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I want you to teach me not to be selfish. I mean, I can take you to passages. I can try to reason with you. But what I can't do is take a ball of love and force it into your heart. I can't do that. That's what God has to do. God has to do that. I mean, that's why it's so sad. The programs in the world that try to reform people, and some of them do good. Some of them do temporary good. But when you take someone that's just completely selfish and you think, how do I, how do I fix them? How do I change them? Well, modify their behavior, uh, different medications, and, and a mixture of all sorts of philosophy. But what's lacking in that person is any ability to love. I mean, there's nothing to build on. So all these things are just, we're trying to build on top of sand. But it's not there. Right? You have to be born again to be able to love with this God-like love, this Christ-like love. And a few passages just to briefly describe the new birth. This is a, a really important doctrine. Uh, this will keep you from being discouraged as you try to grow as a Christian. Because when you fail, which you will, we all fail, but when you fail, you'll be tempted to think, I will never change. I can't change. I'm still the same rotten person I used to be. But the doctrine of the new birth corrects that thinking, that line of thinking, that way of thinking about yourself. The, the Bible describes the new birth with several pictures. So like many things, it can't be scientifically described. It's not like an, like an organ. We can take it out and look at it and dissect it and x-ray it and all of that. We, we can't do that with spiritual realities, but we are given pictures to teach us about it. So the new birth is called a resurrection from the dead. It's called a spiritual rebirth. So the picture of birth, a child coming into the world, a new life emerging, that's a picture of what happens to someone when they become a Christian. Or another picture in Ezekiel, the new birth is described as a heart transplant. It's actually God cutting out your spiritual heart that was useless and giving you a new heart that's able to obey his commandments, that even wants to. He said, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's what we were, that's what we were before. We had a heart of stone. We didn't care about the Bible or God, about the gospel, because it was a stone that was in our heart. There is no ability to respond. No blood flowing. No nothing. Just a stone. But God replaces that. It's also described as writing on the heart. So God taking his spiritual pen and engraving his law on our heart. That's another way it's described where my heart is averse one, one day, it's averse to God's commandments, 
And the next day, all of a sudden, I wake up, I want to obey his commandments. That's now attractive to me. So again, that change is not something a person can do for you. It's not something you can do for your friends or family. I mean, God has to take his pen right on their heart, his law, that makes them inclined toward obedience and see the beauty of his law. And finally, the new birth is described as a new creation. It's actually a brand new creation. You're so radically different that you're called a completely new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're entirely new. I mean, you're still you. You still have the same name, same body, same soul even. It's not that you are a literal new being, but you're so different. You're so radically different that you're described as a new creation in Christ. And so that's the question. I mean, before we even go further and ask what does it mean to have brotherly love and how can we improve in that, you have to ask the question, am I born again? Am I born again? If you are, then you can know that no one has taught you how to do this. That's something God did to you. And you now have the resources to do all these things we're studying. It seems like, it might seem like the Christian ideal is way up here somewhere, and it is. It's perfection. But you have the resources to make progress, and you have the resources to please God. Even though you're stumbling, crawling, you crawl forward one foot, slide back two feet, the next day a foot and a half, you slide back only one foot the next day, that's, we make progress. It may be slow, though. But if you are not, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't just assume that because you're in church or you've, you, know, you like the Bible a little bit and you grew up religious, and you shouldn't assume you're born again. I don't think that's a helpful thing to do to people to just say, oh, you're worried about your soul. Well, don't worry. You're, you're born again. Oh, did you pray this? Did you pray this prayer? Um, yeah, you're definitely born again. I mean, if you're if this is still a question mark for you, I would, I would urge you to continue seeking God. And God will clarify in time the state of your soul. I mean, you can trust him for that. That if you're not sure, seek the Lord in prayer. Uh, read read uh, 1 John would be a great book to read just for evidences of the new birth, whether or not that describes you. That is a really important thing. I mean, we can't, we can't get into the practical things if we're not regenerate. That's another way of saying it. We're born again. We're regenerate. We have the resources that we need. Well, Paul is sure they're excelling in this love because God has taught them how to do that. These are believers. He knows firsthand. These are real Christians. And so he knows just in the back of his mind, if they've responded to the gospel, they've repented and believed in Christ, they have these resources to love one another. But beyond that, there's actually hard evidence, hard evidence of their love, right? He says in verse 10, you are practicing it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. So remember, this church is in a town or city called Thessalonica in modern-day Greece. It's a, you know, it's a rough equivalent. And this was a major city in Greece. And so lots of people were traveling through Thessalonica constantly, 
Uh, they would have had a lot of opportunities to meet other traveling missionaries or other believers, maybe needed a place to stay. Uh, they probably got news relatively quickly about the state of other churches, maybe in Philippi or Berea or, or Corinth. And so they could have provided for the needs of poor Christians. But Paul doesn't mention any specifics, and so we shouldn't spend much time trying to speculate on that. The point is just there was hard evidence, and there always will be. There's always evidence of love. There's, there's no such thing as you just sit with love in your heart, but you never actually act on that. There's, there's always some sort of evidence. There's always some sort of evidence of that. But their love wasn't perfect. So they had been born again, and they had demonstrated that love in practical ways. And yet Paul still sees a need. There's still a bit of a blind spot with these believers. And if we're anything like them, if we're human, we likely still have the same blind spot as well. One of these blind spots when we consider the issue of brotherly love. We tend to neglect uh, this one area, or maybe not neglect it, but we tend to just not see the connection between what we're about to talk about and brotherly love, and that's the idea of work. That's the idea of our, our job. So I know we're here in church, and we're thinking spiritually, we're, we're in the Bible, we're praying, but what do we, I mean, to be honest, what do we do for most of our waking hours? I mean, if you're a, if you're a kid, you're in school most of the day, hopefully. Uh, but if you're an adult, and if you've left the home, what, what do most of us do during the week? Most of us work, right? I mean, we work 40 hours, 30, 50, 60. Um, if you add all, you might work a 40-hour job, but if you add everything together, it's probably more than that. Yeah, most of us spend most of our waking hours working, doing a job that we're, we're not totally sure how significant it is. I mean, how significant could it really be selling insurance or minding a store, being a clerk or being a gardener or etc.? We do these little tasks and that, that's us. I mean, that's our life. We do this, these things. And then we think about brotherly love and we don't always see the connection. So what is me working at wherever we work, what does that have to do with loving God's people? I mean, I'm not with them. I'm just stuck here in my, my post. I'm stuck in my post. I don't feel like I'm loving anyone. I'm just busy doing something I'm not, I'm not sure is really that significant. Well, Paul's going to help us here. God's going to help us here and see the connection between our work and this idea of brotherly love. He says, we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. So keep improving in brotherly love. How? Well, make, have new ambitions in your life. So the Christian should have new ambitions in his life that are different from his past life. This word ambition or aspiration, it um, refers to a philanthropist wanting to do a great act of public service. I mean, this is the, the billionaires now. They want to colonize Mars. They want to create robots. They want to solve world hunger, uh, etc. They want to do these big, huge things that everyone will remember them for. And to be honest, what they're ask after is probably not so much 
the benefit and the serving aspect of it so much as the honor that will come with these great achievements. And so Paul uses this word to describe the Christian's ambitions. So what should our ambitions be as believers? Should we aspire to you know, be like these missionaries that go to Burma and China and do these huge acts for God or like the Apostle Paul, you know, preaching here and there, and then one day getting beheaded in Rome heroically, and then, wow, go down in history as this famous martyr of the faith. Well, it's true. God does call some people to more... Uh, adventurous or significant tasks, so to speak. Uh, But even in the Apostle Paul's life, it's not like every day was this roller coaster whirlwind ride. I mean, we even read when he was in Thessalonica, what did he do? I mean, when he arrived in town, did did he spend seven days a week, 24 hours a day praying and preaching? Well, no, he actually had a job. So the Apostle Paul, as great a man as he was, for hours and hours, while he was ministering in this city, he was just working somewhere. He had some normal job. And so our ambitions, they need to be the opposite of what these big worldly philanthropists have. And more specifically, we need to be ambitious to live quietly. That's the first ambition we need to have. Live quietly. And that's worth thinking about for a little bit. I need to be ambitious to live a quiet life. We don't tend to think like that. You know, if we see a movie or we read a, a fiction book about a hero or a pioneer or a general... There's all this activity. There's a flurry of activity. There's dust flying in the air. Uh, You know, bullets are whizzing by our face, by the guy's head. And there's just this tremendous excitement in the life of the hero that we think of. And some of us can bring that into the Christian life. And we think, well, if there's not this huge amount of excitement in our life, somehow we're being unfaithful. Maybe that's a sign we're not doing God's will. If things aren't happening around us, if there's not all this activity, we might be tempted to think, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Just waking up, driving to work, doing the same thing I do every day, come back home, see the family, take care of some some issues around the house, go to bed, and then repeat. Then I go to church on Sunday. Uh, some of us are tempted to think, well, there's something not dignified or there's something wrong with that kind of life. But I want to encourage you that that should be your normal rhythm of life. There ought to be this quiet, restful, peaceful character to your life. And that's what this word refers to. It's the idea of a, a life that doesn't disturb the public order. I mean, you're, you won't be the reason the town erupts in a frenzy. That's not us as Christians. I mean, we may offend people occasionally with the gospel, but our general character of life, it should be quiet. It should be quiet. We should be focused on our responsibilities. On the other hand, a loud home is usually a sign. It's usually a sign. So if your home is loud, it's usually a sign of disorder. Okay, and what we're talking about here 
is the idea of an orderly life. So not just work, that's part of it, but having a well-ordered life. And so if, you're, if your home is loud, if your life is loud, if you're always getting calls and, and, and getting up in arms about relational issues, people are banging on your door, telling you to pay your bills, you're throwing people's clothes out of the, out of the house, screaming, chasing people down the street. I mean, one I mean, a man that lived on my parents' street before I was born, he literally came out of his house one day and chased another man down the street with an axe. He, he didn't catch him. Okay, the police came and said, so don't worry. But so that's the opposite of what we're talking about. It's not the angry girlfriend throwing the TV out the second story window. Uh, that's the opposite of a quiet life. We want to aspire to be quiet. And so it's not that the quietness itself is this big virtue. It's more of a sign. Okay, so the general character of our life should be quiet. And if it's not, that's just a sign. We, we have some work to do. We have some issues. There's, there's a few things to take care of. And that's the life of a peacemaker, where you make peace. That's what a Christian is and does. But the second way, the second ambition, rather, that Paul gives us is we want to attend to our own business. We want to attend to our own business. Again, a very simple thought. We often tell other people, mind your own business, or people may tell us that. But what does that mean? Well, the word here, I mean, there's no deep Greek here or anything like that, but just look at the words. It says, attend to your own business. So that means that you have real responsibilities that God has given you. You have a definite list, a set of responsibilities. If we could just brainstorm together, what, what would those be? Well, uh, married, that's uh, my family, my wife first, and my kids. Uh, I'm a neighbor. I have neighbors. So if they need help, I mean, I should help them when they have need of that. Uh, I'm an employee somewhere. I'm responsible to showing up at this time, clocking out at this time at least, and being diligent while I'm there. I have bills to pay. Those are obligations I have. I need to make sure those are paid. I'm a church member. So I ought to be involved a little bit at church, just doing something, a little practical ministry in, in some way at church, in a way that other people appreciate and affirm. And so we have these responsibilities. We have families, we have jobs, we have ministry at the church maybe. But what happens when we start, we start wandering outside this sphere of our responsibilities? What, what tends to happen? For example, you, you neglect your family, you neglect your wife or your husband and your kids and just the general state of your home, what starts to happen? You just don't think about it at all. You're busy, you know, you're busy at the missions conference or you're busy praying, you know, 20 hours a day or something like that. What tends to happen to your home? Well, it just naturally devolves. It starts, it starts descending into chaos. So everything tends toward chaos. Right? It's been a long time since high school, but I believe that's the law of thermodynamics. Right? So everything decays toward that's the same way spiritually. Life just needs order. It needs to be enforced and upheld. It needs attention. And we start, when we start neglecting our responsibilities, um, there's mess. There's relational messes. 
There's physical messes. It's, it's the same way. But in addition to that, people don't appreciate it when we mess around in their business. And that hardly needs to be said, does it? But I am saying it because I think we can grow in this as a church. I think it's, it's always a temptation to want to get more involved in someone's life than is really necessary, okay? And so there's this idea of Christian ministry and service, but there's this other thing called being a busybody, and those aren't the same. So it's not necessarily always helpful or biblical to get hyper-involved in someone's business. I mean, if, if someone uh, is going, you, you just hear, you overhear something, or you, or you, maybe someone else mentions something that alerts you to the fact that someone else's life is not going well, they have issues. But if you know they have a friend that's, that's kind of involved in helping them, you generally don't need to get more involved in it, especially if there's a mature Christian already kind of involved in that person's life. We want to be slow, okay? We want to be slow to, to prying into someone's life. We, we do want to rely on other people coming to us asking for help more so than us kind of being the detective, okay? So when you start being the detective, just know that other people don't, don't appreciate that. Just consider a few examples. So children, a group of children. Are there any kids here? <laughs> okay, you do a craft with other kids. And so you, you all have your sheet of paper. You have your pencils. You have your stickers. And okay, each kid has their own chair, a little space at the table. And the other kid's over here. And they're all doing the little craft, having a great time. Well, what happens when this kid here, he, he looks over at his neighbor and he has this flash this imaginary, this imaginative flash of creativity. I have this great idea for your craft. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of scoot over here and start doing some things with your paper. What, is, what does the other kid do? I mean, he screams, doesn't he? Most, most kids, I mean, some of your kids may be more self-controlled, but most kids would just scream. And that's understandable, okay? That's understandable. Someone's messing with his stuff. That's none of his business. He has his own stuff. Or consider you show up for work one day and you have an office job and there's your coworker at your desk answering your emails. I mean, would you, would you like that? Would you appreciate that? Or maybe you get home one day and your neighbor is in your garden and they're just like pulling up your flowers and, and all that and you ask them, hey, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm helping you. I mean, it will look much better with these plants. I mean, I'm a gardener. I'm a professional gardener. Trust me. Well, would you you tell me to get out of here? What are you doing? This This is my property. I appreciate the thought, but no thank you. Or a friend changing your investment strategies. All of a sudden, you wake up one day, and your investments are all mixed up and different. And your friend says, well, you'll make more money like this. Just trust me. I'm trying to help you. These are maybe insulting our intelligence a bit just to go through them, but but we need to think about it. We need to take it seriously. I mean, it, it's silly, these, some of these examples, but it's just as silly when you start prying into someone else's life, especially if you have this hunger 
this kind of morbid curiosity for learning more than is necessary about people. And so just to give you some practical help, I want to encourage you not to speak about other people unless, two reasons, okay? One, that you are purposefully raising that person's reputation in the eyes of the people you're talking to, right? You're commending them. Oh, have you heard so-and-so? They've done this great thing. Oh, they're, they're doing such a great job with their family member who's so difficult, right? You're raising their reputation. It's not, well, have you heard? Oh, yeah, she's having a real hard time, you know, and you kind of give this look. That's, we don't need that. We don't need more of that. We want to raise each other's reputations when we're in conversation. But two... Sometimes we do need to mention someone's faults while they're not there, but that's really rare, okay? And so it's not that that is always a sin, but just ask, okay, I'm about to mention something to this person about someone else that, that is not flattering or is a fault or a sin. I need to be really sure that that's necessary, okay? So if we could all just grow in that a little bit during this time, right? We just want to think, so if someone else's name comes up in a conversation, that should just, that should put a little flag up. Is this, is this good? Is this going to accomplish one of God's purposes? Is this going to be a blessing to our fellowship here? Or is this just me kind of catering to my old fallen ways of, of gossip and meddling in other people's business? And so we want to be people that mind their own business. Uh, implying we have responsibilities. And so if we focus on those, that will help a lot. I mean, you won't, you won't be gabbing for hours and hours each day. Why? Because you'll be busy. You'll be doing, busy doing productive things. And that will be a great help, just to have productive things on your schedule. But finally, Paul is very explicit here, and he says, work with your hands. So we want to be ambitious to lead a quiet life, attend to our own business, and third, to work with our hands. Can't get much plainer than that. I mean, you have these two hands. God wants you to use them to work. Uh, work is not a curse. Work existed before the fall, okay? God designed work to be a blessing to you. He designed it to be enjoyable. He designed it to be an act of ruling on his behalf over the creation, uh, to rule, to cultivate, to protect, to guard. I mean, the, the images Scripture uses to describe work are really encouraging and, and interesting. I mean, the pioneer. We want to press into the disorder and the chaos of the world, and we want to subjugate the world and its resources for human flourishing. The, there's also the picture of the farmer. We want to cultivate it. We want to maximize the productivity the potential in the earth for the benefit of human life and civilization. And when you're participating in that, you, you really are doing that. You might be part of a, a larger company doing that or part of a lar larger process. But if you're doing any lawful work, you're doing those things. You're, you're acting as a ruler in God's world. Uh, you're, you're bringing the world and its resources into a state where it benefits other people. Okay, and even if you would say, well, I don't see how this 
you know, selling vacuum cleaners or selling something else contributes to that, and it's honestly not that great of a product, right? Well, at the very least, you are providing for your family. You are providing for your family. You're, you're enabling yourself to be generous with others. You're, you're enabling yourself to have clear accounts with, with all your utility providers and your, your credit card statements and et cetera. And that's freeing you. So that's taking the chains off of you. You're now free to, to help when occasions call for it. And so you may not recognize the importance of this, but, but there are opportunities that will come our way in all of our lives. And if our life is not in order and we haven't learned just to, to be at our post and to get the job done, we're going to miss a lot of opportunities. I mean, what... I mean, imagine just uh, there's an opportunity uh, to do something. Well, I don't have an example ready, but just even in the church, okay? Someone aspires to be a leader in the church, a Bible study leader or an elder, maybe a church planter or a missionary in the future. I mean, okay, there's this big aspiration way out there, but between today and there, what will that involve? Well, that'll involve the church evaluating you a little bit and saying, well, okay, uh, that's great that you're interested in going to China, but tell me, how is it with your job? Are you able to, are things going well? You, you have a good relationship with your boss? Are you, do you receive good reviews for the work you're doing? And, and if not, if there's major issues there, I mean, working in China as a missionary, it's still work, okay? So the same work ethic you need here is the same one you need there or anything else, any other ambition you may have. And so just the, the state of your present work and employment, that's a strong indicator of just how you would do with bigger responsibilities. Right? So we want to focus on the small things and be ready for the opportunities God brings our way. The Greeks were really prone to devalue work. So for them, the ideal life was the life spent philosophizing, not these dirty people building, you know, working with raw material and and uh, selling food and, and whatnot. Their ideal was to spend their life in the academy, learning from wise guys and philosophers. But here, that, that uh, worldview and that attitude toward work is, is debunked and it's corrected. Right? Working with your hands is pleasing to God. So as long as your line of work is not a direct breaking of one of God's commandments, that's pleasing to God. I mean, unloading packages moving things around, taking people's orders, that is good work that pleases God. When should we work? This might be a hard truth for some of us. So the Bible actually says that the work week is six days. Okay, so some of us are talking about four days. Are we, they, these people in Europe, they're doing really well with this thing called the four-day work week. Okay, well, one of the Ten Commandments uh, keeping the Sabbath, it says, what, six days you shall work. Ooh, six? And then, while the sun is up, uh, one of the Psalms say, when the sun rises, the, the animals, the nocturnal animals, they go down to their dens, and man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. So the general rule is six days a week, if the sun's up, we're doing something productive. I mean, if you wake up at four or three, yeah, a nap would be okay. 
or if you don't get a lot of sleep because of other issues, uh, it's not a law against naps. But generally speaking, if the sun's up six days a week, we want to be productive. Uh, and laziness is really a, a major issue. And, and it's not an, it's something that will come by itself. It will always have friends that it will bring with it. Uh, poverty is a friend of laziness. Slavery, maybe not modern slavery, but just being enslaved to all these bills. Like you have all these huge bills and you can't do, you have, you have shackles around you to keep you from maybe moving or buying some purchase because these things aren't, aren't in order. And then also being a busybody related to the last point. That being diligent in our work will, I think, be the best preventative from being a busybody. And, and if that was an issue with you and you said, how can I, people have told me that I need to mind my own business a little bit more and that's been hard to hear, but I do want to grow in that. The first practical thing I would say is just tell me about your work week. Tell me about your commitments during the week. Do you have things scheduled during the week that are productive? Or is your calendar, it's like, wake up, go to sleep, and then blank in the middle. And then you're kind of on the couch. You kind of wander around the house, snack, and see, call some friends. I wonder how so-and-so is doing. Call them. I mean, I'm being a little, we're getting in the details here, but this is something God cares about. We want to be productive. And we don't want to be so proud that we say, oh, this isn't a problem with us. No one here struggles with that. No one here is a busybody. We want to be humble, right? Some people object to work. They say, I have some sort of mental issue with working in this way. So I know most people, a strong man, he can work six hours, six days a week. He can work sun up to sundown. He's this big, burly, strong man, but that's, that's not me. I have this, this mental issue. And I went to the doctor and they said, you have this serious issue. And so you, you can get an exempt from, be exempt from, from working. Well, I don't want to play psychologist or doctor. I just want to ask you before God is, are you really convinced in your conscience before God that that, that is keeping you from doing productive work? Okay, so it's not that there will never be a time to be outside the workforce or anything like that, a time of intense grief. Maybe we take a leave of absence or illness. Um, We don't want to be legalistic here, but I do want to ask you, maybe no one's ever pressed you on this before. Do you have a clear conscience about that? Or did you just go to the doctor and they said, oh, you you don't want to work? Well, that's this uh, mental illness called... um, not want to work itis or something. And you ju- you're just taking that as your get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, so just be convinced. Have a clear conscience about that, right? It's a major issue, and I might step on some toes here, but the idea of checks, right? Most people, a lot of people in our culture in America, we get checks in the mail from people, okay? We get a check from the government because, you know, we have some disability maybe, or we have this um, mental illness issue or something, and, or we may have a rich family member. And so for whatever reason, they, they send us some cash, and that's what we live on. And that kind of frees us up from not having, having to work. Uh, that's, again, not to be legalistic, but just as the general character of your life, if you're an able-bodied person, that is not God's will for you to live like that. 
I mean, that needs to be a temporary window, right? That's not just you till you're, you know, till you go home to glory. You just get checks. You get the check. And I know this. I mean, this is in my family. This is people I know. Uh, children, they hang around, mom and dad, longer than they should, right? They come calling, knocking on the door. Oh, yeah, I'm a little short again, a little short. I mean, the best thing you can do for your kids, honestly, when that happens is tough love. I mean, tough love will be the best thing for your kids. I mean, if they're working hard, they have this job and they're really being diligent at it and they have a good character and they have a one-time need or they have a need for a short period of time, we can be generous and we should be even in the church. We should be with each other. But if that's just the character of this person and they're, they're the leech, right? We want to encourage the leech to get a job. Okay, so I'm saying it pretty bluntly like that, but it's really important. I mean, we, very, a very practical issue. Uh, this will get in the way of our church doing significant ministry, both among us and in the community too. I mean, we can be super spiritual. We can be clapping our hands, singing hallelujah. But then if we're lazy and we're busybodies, we're not going to be able to do anything to help other people. I mean, someone will come to us for help. Help me to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And, you know, our business isn't in order, and so we won't be able to help in a lot of ways that we should be. We should be able to help. Other people are just concerned about working themselves to death. They say, well, if I worked, if I worked that hard, I would just drop dead. I can't stand that. I can't work six days a week. I can't work while the sun's up. Oh, that sounds crazy. Did you know there's, did you know, there's people at this church that work 12 to 15 hour days consistently or 70 plus hours a week and they're not dropping dead. They're not complaining. They just, that's what they have to do to pay their bills and that's what they do. Just generally, I would say that we treat ourselves too delicately, okay? So there might be a few workaholics here. There may be a few workaholics here, but a lot of us, we, we listen to the kind of self-help culture and the self-love culture, and we think, well, I'll have some sort of mental, mental issue or I'll, I'll kind of drop dead unless I care for myself and I can pamper myself, okay? But the Bible is not as concerned about that. It's way more concerned about laziness than this other, this other extreme of working yourself to death, Okay? And so if you need help with that, just talk to a friend. Talk to a few friends. Hey, here's my schedule. And the sermon, it seemed to be, um, I wasn't sure how I felt about all of that. Can you look, help me? Just think about my commitments. Am I, am I on the verge of working myself to death or am I on the other end? Or am I, or am I right where I think God would have me? So we want to be humble. We want to be humble here and really consider our responsibilities, and our work. So the result of living this kind of way, having an orderly life, Paul mentions two results of this. And so we'll close with these in verse 12. He says, if you live this way, you will walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And so this kind of life that's well-ordered, where you have your responsibilities and you're fulfilling them, you will command the respect not only of believers, but of people outside the church. I mean, people will still think you're a religious 
quirk, an interesting person, all right, they won't appreciate your religion maybe, but your lifestyle will command their respect. You'll command their respect. And so when you do, just shoot straight with them about Christ. And you say, well, do you know Christ? Do you know the message of the Bible? Do you mind if I share that with you? They're, they're not going to laugh at you. They're not going to think you're crazy. They're going to know this is a person that does have dignity. I mean, I can't argue with that. This guy has his life in order. His, his family's in order. Uh, he's, a, he's a productive member of our society. And that's a platform for us to minister, especially to the lost. Whereas if you're, you know, you're dressed crazy and your hair's crazy and you don't have a job and, and people know that and you're talking about all this, all this um, kind of vain stuff and you bring up religion, well, of course, people aren't going to take you seriously. <laughs> They're not gonna, you're going to be that crazy guy or that crazy lady who talks about Jesus, who wears the Jesus hat and all this stuff. But we want to be men and women of dignity and respect. It will also make it so that you won't have needs. And some of us, maybe it's been a long time since we've, we've had that independence, right? Financial independence. And we think we haven't even thought about what a blessing that would be to be independent. We can make our own decisions. You know, I want to buy a new car. I can buy it. I want to move here. I can, I can move there. Someone comes to me with a need. I, I can help you. Okay, so that will enable us not, not to take from other people, but you see, we're actually enabling ourselves to serve in more ways. So by, by ordering our life and really giving attention to these ultra-practical, almost boring aspects of our life, we're, we're freeing ourselves up for more ministry. We, can't, we can do more for God when our lives are ordered. And so that's God's message for us today, that we want to be people that love one another. We want to excel in brotherly love. And this church, you do. You are loving each other. I mean, you encourage each other. You speak the truth to each other. You're opening your homes to each other. And all of that is great. And I would say the same thing as Paul. What he said, there is brotherly love here. And I don't want you just as a church to take this as, my view that this church has no brotherly love is the opposite. But this text is, is calling our attention to this specific area that we may love each other, you know, on Sunday and be really friendly and warm and greeting each other. But if our life is not in order during the week, that's going to prevent us from loving each other in other ways. In other ways. And yeah, our work is an act of service. So when you're... I mean, this applies to mothers too. When you're in the home caring for your children, cleaning, cooking, things like that, that's not just busy work. That's, that's a blessing. That's such a great blessing to your family. That's an act of love. That's an act of brotherly love. Or people, farmers, right? Driving in a tractor hours a day, sitting in there, what am I doing? What, how does this connect with the big events unfolding on world history? Well, it does. I mean, that's all these things. It's all connected. It's all interconnected. The orderliness of your life is connected to your ability to love other people. Let me close by sharing this verse from Galatians 6. Just to encourage us not to, not to despise our work. Right? It says, Do not lose heart in doing good. 
for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So the clerk, the farmer, the salesman, the mother, all of these occupations are blessings. There's, it's, it's an act of service for other people. And so don't lose heart in that. I mean, don't lose heart in your job. Your job is God-given. Um, it's not boring. It's not something that's, that's totally separate from your Christian life. God has assigned you there. He's put you there. And you are loving people likely a lot more than you realize when you're doing it, when you're doing that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us these instructions. Uh, we thank you for the very practical exhort- exhortation today to give attention to our life and our work, uh, to be quiet generally, to mind our own business, to fulfill our responsibilities, and then to give ourselves fully to some useful line of work. I do pray uh, that there would be no pride in our hearts as we hear these words. I pray that you would enable us to graciously and soberly examine ourselves and to see where we fall in these matters. We also pray for wisdom as we want to make either minor or major corrections in these areas. We pray that you would provide useful work for the people that probably should be a bit more busy with that. We pray that you would provide them with useful work with which they could provide for themselves and also be enabled to provide for other people as well. We pray that you would bring uh, useful jobs and job opportunities to those that need them. And we also pray that you would encourage us this week as we go back to our post, either at the desk or uh, with the machinery or in our homes with our little kids. We pray that you would give us a fresh perspective, a renewed perspective of how significant that work is and how it connects not just to, to our boss or our family, but really to the whole church and even to unbelievers in our community, that it's all connected. We pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit to live a life that is pleasing to you and worthy of respect in a good way. Uh, We do pray that we would be a people of dignity and respect, that people would look at our lives and see a life that is well-ordered and in place. We pray that you would bless all of us as we go away from here, not for our own benefit, but for your glory. Uh, Enable us in a new way to serve you and to live a life that glorifies you in this next week. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.